Welcome to Common Voice, the podcast of the College of Public Health of Temple University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this month's episode of Common Voice, the podcast of the College of Public Health. I'm Dr. David Sarwar. I'm your host and the Associate Dean for Research uh, in the college. I also have the great pleasure of directing our Center for Obesity Research and Education. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by another member of our faculty, Dr. Brian McCormick. He is a professor in the Department of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences in our college. Um, he is past president of the American Therapeutic Recreation Association and is also a fellow in the Academy of Leisure Sciences and the National Academy, Academy of Recreational Therapists. Um, in addition to talking about his research and scholarship today, we're going to be talking a little bit about a new initiative that he's bringing to the college, uh, along with some colleagues, around the idea of mattering. Um, but, but Brian, where I would like to start today is um, just for people who don't know, um, and I know that, that it took me a couple of years to kind of get it straight in my mind, too. Tell me a little bit more specifically about what recreational therapists do. So recreational therapy is a uh, allied health profession. Um, recreational therapists work in a variety of health and human service settings um, across the age range and across different types of abilities and disabilities. But what they all have in common is the use of recreation activities and forms and even concepts as a habilitative or rehabilitative tool. Um, one of the stories that I, I, I've told about how recreation therapy oftentimes uses recreation as a motivational tool is a, uh, my brother-in-law had um, surgery on a jugular. He had a fairly extensive cancer and one of his favorite things to do was fly radio controlled airplanes. And a week or two after the surgery, he was still in a bit of pain, but we were out flying radio controlled airplanes. And so what he's doing is he's looking up, he's turning his head, Whereas in an exercise approach, you would have said, okay, do this, do this, do this, and it hurt. But by flying radio-controlled airplanes, the, the exercise was a side effect of the intrinsically motivating flying the plane. And so a lot of what we do is use these types of activities that are engaging to people um, as a habilitative or developmental tool, whether that's social development, interpersonal development, cognitive uh, uh, development. So Recreation and leisure involve, you know, sort of whole person, and and that's how we use that as a habilitative tool. So, so is the idea then that, as opposed to somebody in my field uh, who does weight management, as opposed to prescribing exercise, your approach would be more to say, let's find a recreational activity for you to engage in, and this the this in addition to enjoying that activity, the side benefit will be you will get David's exercise prescription fit in. Yep. And one of the things that we really talk about is approach versus avoidance goals. You know, this idea of when the activity itself is its own reinforcement, that's an approach goal. But when the activity is a, a means to avoid some negative outcome or, you know, lose weight, as it's more difficult for people to maintain those motives, right? That when an obstacle presents itself in an approach goal, people will move a lot of things to maintain that behavior because the behavior is the reward. When the behavior is an instrument uh, to avoid some negative outcome, obstacles get in the way and people don't exert much effort to remove those obstacles. So yeah, I'm smiling right now. And obviously the listeners can't see that. I'm I'm listening to a book called um 
um, the, the, uh, uh, the, oh my God, I'm blanking on the title. It's the course of Ireland. And it's actually about a guy from Philadelphia who's a scratch golfer who uh, decides to walk the entire country of Ireland and play all the golf courses. Hmm. And he, and, and to the point of uh, the book that I'm in right now, he acknowledges that in the, the first two months of doing this, he has lost 15 pounds. He's in better shape than he's ever been in his life. But the goal hasn't been to, to get in shape. It was more to accomplish this dream to, to see all these golf courses in Ireland. Um, and I couldn't help but laugh and smile when I read that, because if I were to probably have said to that same guy, I want you to increase your activity level. Let's see if we can get you to lose yeah. some weight. Chances are that never would have happened. Right. Or, or would have attempted it, but then something would get in the way and be like, ah, I don't, I, I'm not going to overcome that, you know? Yeah. Or, or, you know, or I'll do it for a couple of weeks, but because that, that other value of mental stimulation and and being out in the environment isn't there, it's going to be hard to stick with it. Yeah. So intrinsic so, motivation uh, is really a big component of recreation therapy because intrinsic motivation is a big component of recreation and leisure behavior generally. So, so but your degrees are actually, or some of your degrees are actually in recreation and parks. So did you, did you set out to, to do this kind of work or did you kind of accidentally fall into it? In, so there's a long history of how these areas sort of came together. Um, and at least one uh, branch of, of the origins of recreation therapy actually come from uh, the inclusion movement. One of the things that's really interesting that a lot of people don't realize is that one of the first public services available to people with disabilities was recreation and leisure. Since most municipalities in the United States, particularly in mid-century, the 20th century, had fairly extensive parks and recreation because it was seen as a public good, that in many other areas of public services, people with disabilities were excluded. But beginning in probably just the late 1950s, people with disabilities were now starting to be accepted and programs were being offered in public parks and recreation programs for people, particularly people with intellectual disability who might no longer being institutionalized, you know, and so this is really part of the development is people have access to parks and recreation opportunities. And that's one of the reasons that recreation therapy and sometimes called therapeutic recreation is oftentimes found in parks and recreation types of, of settings. It was here at Temple at one point. So would, would we, which Roosevelt, which President Roosevelt do we have to thank for it then? Do we go all the way back to Teddy and his emphasis on the national park system and and protecting our wildlife, or is this well, more of a some, a byproduct of of, uh, of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency? Um, probably more so the Franklin Roosevelt in some ways, but but mainly because of the outcomes of the world world wars, uh, the use of recreation, particularly in rehabilitation hospitals. You know, some of the early uh, nursing uh, advocates and the the pioneers in nursing also recognized the value of physical activity, particularly when serving uh, soldiers. And that remains, you know, the Veterans Administration remains the single largest employer of recreation therapists in the United States. Hmm. Um, so a lot of it comes out of that part as well. And so we see these two threads, you know, the public parks and recreation, but also the hospital recreation, uh, veterans rehabilitation types of uh, threads come and gather in the 1960s with public parks and recreation then. Hmm. So in addition to being part of our Department of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences, you're also part of the Temple University Collaborative. Tell us a little bit more about the important work of this group. So the Temple University Collaborative is um, a, a research group uh, with a number of funding sources. One of the principal funding sources is 
Uh, we're a rehabilitation and research train and training center funded by the National Institute of Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. Uh, we call that NIDLER, uh, but NIDLER is a, uh, a unit within the Administration on Community Living that really focuses on many of the things related to the Rehabilitation Act of 1972 that argued that disability is a part of the human condition and that just because someone acquires a disability, they should still live as independently as they possibly can, just like any other citizen. Our focus in the TU Collaborative is on people with serious mental illness. And so um, really focusing on uh, supporting uh, the development of interventions, basic research, training, technical assistance around community participation, community inclusion. Um, many people with serious mental illness um, have experienced fairly significant exclusion uh, on multiple levels and sometimes overt, sometimes, you know, not, not intended, but the result of some of the impacts and policies that we have in the United States that exclude people from a lot of different domains of life that we're trying to support um, their engagement and inclusion. And that could be in communities of faith, in parenting, in education, higher education, um, recreation and leisure, a variety of areas. Uh, so our work develops interventions and tests those interventions. We also do basic research on understanding what drives some of the supports or barriers to participation and inclusion. You, you mentioned the term serious mental illness, and we know that a large percentage of Americans are dealing with a range of mental health issues at any given point in time. We, you know, we're, we're seeing more and more statistics talking about anxiety and depression related to COVID, the challenges that school-aged children and even those transitioning from high school are having as they're moving on to, to higher levels of education. Um, how are, are serious mental illnesses different than, you know, I, I've got the blues for a couple of weeks or I, I'm stressed out because I'm, you know, on a deadline at work or I have final exams coming up? Yeah, so serious mental illness is a term that is... It, the term is, has varied over time. Um, chronic was a term that at one point was used. And, and the argument against calling something a chronic uh, mental illness is that when it comes to mental health and mental illness, the, the concept of chronicity is not the same as if we're talking about something like diabetes, right? When we have, when someone has diabetes, it's not a ebb and flow kind of a thing. They have it. Um, whereas with, with particularly serious mental illness, there's a potential for people to find some degree of relatively healthy functioning, but there may be problems, there may be setbacks. So when we think about serious mental illness, oftentimes it's defined by, um, by diagnoses. So principal among those are gonna be uh, schizophrenia spectrum disorders. These are psychotic types of disorders, uh, bipolar disorder, which involves both a manic component and a, and a depressive component, and then major depression. Um, and, and it isn't, necessarily just the diagnoses. It is also the degree to which they really interfere and interrupt people's functioning in major life domains. Um, you know, there are some other disorders that have similar characteristics. Um, severe uh, post-traumatic stress disorder can be seen in much the same way. Um, you know, severe anxiety can be seen in much the same way. And in, in the sense of the disorder is, is very disrupting to people's lives and it makes it very difficult for them to, to remain sort of in you know, in everyday life. Uh, and so what we see within folks who, you know, fall within these groups 
is we tend to see uh, low educational attainment. We tend to see high rates of unemployment. Um, we see experience of poverty. Um, you know, so so that also then tends to have impacts on where people live, uh, which means they oftentimes are living in low resource, high crime areas. Um, and and it confers a significant um, health threat in the in the sense of uh, years of life lost. Uh, life expectancy is reduced depending on what study you look at. Um, some of the best data shows at least by eight years. Some of the other data shows as much as 25 years of life lost. And it's not because of self-inflicted you know, harm, which, which is an issue, but it's more cardiovascular disease uh, secondary to you know, smoking, inactivity, um, lifestyle. Well, and I would offer too, as you mentioned, it's also the neighborhoods where a lot mm -hmm. of individuals end up living because we know that even in a city like Philadelphia, the life expectancy can, can vary dramatically depending upon where you were born and raised, where you reside. I, I often try to remind my students that you know, there's about a 15-year life expectancy difference between if you were born and raised in the backyard right behind Temple's campus versus if you go about literally 18 blocks south and you were born and raised in Society Hill or, right. or uh, you know, just the other side of, of Market Street. Um, and, and I, you know, use that example with my students to say, you know, for every block you walk, your life expectancy in theory is increasing by a year. And, and I think it's always important. And I think in particular, when we're talking about serious mental illness, that we, we remember those environmental level variables. Um, yeah. tell me a little bit more too, about the issue of bias and discrimination and stigma mm -hmm. uh, among people with serious mental illness, because I think, you know, we, I know, and, and you'll speak to it much more eloquently than I will, uh, you know, we know that the general public has holds many misperceptions. We know that, for example, you know, as, as we're talking about the challenges around gun violence in the United States, uh, all too quickly, people are willing to say this is this is a mental health issue, not a, a an access to guns issue. But to tell us a little bit about your experience and, and issues of stigma and bias with this population. Well, I mean, it, it's something <laughs> I've always felt that one of the challenges that mental illness has is it's a uh, it's a disorder of degree, not of kind. And so this becomes a real challenging sort of a thing. Like in many health conditions, you either have it or you don't. Whereas, you know, all human brains have the capacity to hallucinate if stressed. Right. And and depression is not uncommon. And And I joke because I talk to our students when they take whether it's psychopathology or abnormal psychology, I say, you know, this week you're convinced you're chronically depressed. And then next week you're convinced you've got a psychotic disorder. And then next week, and it's, and, and everyone laughs because that is the experience, but nobody wants to say it. Right. Right. But it's because we identify with these things. It, it is a, it is a disorder of degree, not of kind. Mm -hmm. And so there is this real desire, I think sometimes to distinguish and, and distance ourselves from, you know, serious mental illness. Um, it results in this stigma. And a, a colleague of mine, when I was at Indiana University, did a 16-country study of stigma and did this very interesting um, backbone of stigma. And what they did was they looked at the items in their they have 26 or 30 items, and they looked at the countries, they looked at the items that had the highest endorsement. And there were about five of them that were consistently endorsed by something like 70% or more of adults. 
and they included that people with mental illness shouldn't um, care for children. People with mental illness are likely to be violent. Um, people with mental illness um, shouldn't uh, have children. You know, so so it's really interesting. We're doing some work right now on supporting parents with mental illness. And this is really one of the big obstacles that parents with a mental health condition have is that people presume they're bad parents and they don't want to be parents, you know? And so that's one of the big challenges that people with mental illness face in, in these stigmatizing environments. Um, you know, my colleague Gretchen Sneathan has done some work on uh, welcoming communities and welcoming environments and trying to figure out, you know, where is it that people, what, what is it about certain environments that people feel like they uh, are welcome there? And, and what are the other environments in which they feel like they're not welcome, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really glad you've made this point about um, the spectrum of, of mental illness and that um, unlike a, a condition like diabetes or hypertension, that once you have the diagnosis, odds are quite high that you're going to have that diagnosis for the rest of your life. Whereas, you know, mental illness can wax and wane over the course of the lifetime. Um, you know, like you, uh, you know, as, as a clinical psychologist, I've had the, the fortune of meeting people with severe mental illness who have actually figured out uh, oftentimes with a tremendous amount of support and, and professional help, how to manage their disorder as, as well as they can and, you know, still have you know, stable family lives and, and careers and so forth. But um, the journey to that can can often be very long and, and, yes. and challenging. And I think without some of that community support, let alone just that larger notion of acceptance, it's it's harder still. Yeah. And I think we found some things that have been very interesting as a result of the pandemic, for example, that, you know, one of the things that, that we've definitely been able to identify is that participation in communities of faith has been much easier for people who would have a hard time sitting quietly for a full hour. You know, that's just partly some sometimes it's side effects of medications. There are a lot of other things going on. But through being able to access some of these things virtually, it, it allows people to participate in a way that accommodates their needs when, you know, pre-pandemic, it could have been very hard for them to be, you know, somebody who could sit through a, a, a faith service quietly, which is what is expected in most communities of faith. So, so I agree with you 100%, but I, I think, uh, you know, in, in talking about this issue of, of remote connectedness and, you know, zooming, zooming into a, a, you know, religious service, um, the, I, I had the great pleasure of being trained by by some world's experts in anxiety disorders. And one of the things that they would have said at least 30 years ago, pre-Zoom, is they would have said, but it's so much better to find a way for the person to go into the house of worship and figure out how to overcome their anxiety. Where do you fall on, on that continuum of the importance of, I mean, is, is using technology like web conferencing is has that been helpful to people with serious mental illness or is it good but not optimal in terms of when we talk about uh community engagement and, yeah. and participation well you know what's funny is that we're increasingly looking right now at this concept of digital participation if we think about the our our involvement in the community in the larger world digital technologies are here to stay and the way that we engage with our both in vivo and virtual worlds is, is really rather important. And the more that we're looking at this, the more we're looking at the people who are 
excluded in the in viva world are also being excluded in the digital world mm -hmm. and so thinking about this as a way of participating is face-to-face -face communication you know one of the best and most people would argue it is sort of the gold standard the challenge is though if you've been simply excluded previously this now gives an opportunity for some level of inclusion right and some degree of connection um the the challenge too is that you know in the example you used you know, for having the individual address their anxiety by going to that setting and dealing with it is only one half of the story. The environments themselves are not accommodating. So if we really want to make this happen, then we have to work with the um, community services to say, you can figure out a way to accommodate people who may not be able to participate in the way you have historically wanted everyone to participate. So it's a two-sided sort of a thing. You know, I mean, ideally, the face-to-face being there, there's a certain importance to that. In it, it definitely, you know, it, it's more cognitively complex. There's a whole other area on environmental enrichment that we've been looking at too. It's more cognitively complex. It keeps the brain active. You know, getting out of the house is important. Um, but at the same time, complete exclusion and isolation is just as bad. So, you know, is this a is this a alternate or you know a way of engaging? in the digital community that has previously been excluded. So, um, And I think, again, you, you raise an important point, which is where face-to-face, -face, many people would say, is that ideal. What are we seeing? We're seeing this early signal from the literature that engagement in healthcare services because of telehealth increased profoundly and that we've seen a decrease in no-show rates and last-minute cancellations in all forms of healthcare, because it's not just it's it's everything that it takes to get from your home yeah. to the to the office and back and the time and the cost and the inconvenience, um, as opposed to okay, I've got to go find a quiet place and jump on a Zoom call or a web conference with somebody for a period of time. We we I think all all too often discount yeah um, the, those challenges and and how that can be hard for everyone, uh, yeah. let alone people dealing with chronic health issues. And who typically have very limited resources. Mm -hmm. You know, so a lot of the logistics of getting to and from are some of the biggest barriers. Yeah. So, so you've had the tremendous honor of being awarded not only one, but two Fulbright scholarships for work that you've done in both Serbia as well as Bosnia. Mm -hmm. I've had the great fortune of, of hearing a little bit about this, but tell us a little bit more about what it was like for you to take your work to those countries. Well, it actually began with work that I started in 2003 when I was in Kosovo. And so um, many people may not remember, but um, there, the this is a former Yugoslavia. In the mid-90s, early to mid-90s, the, the country of Yugoslavia made up of a number of uh, republics broke up in a fairly violent way, ending with um, a, a pretty significant war in Bosnia. Um, in 1999, a similar conflict happened in the uh, region of Kosovo, which is a southern section of Serbia, but it was mostly Albanian, um, ethnic Albanians in that area. I was there working with the International Organization for Migration in a program called Psychosocial Trauma Response. Um, and it really was had come in and, and was trying to reorganize the mental health system in former Yugoslavia. And so on a bigger level, 
Um, what happened was because Yugoslavia was a command economy, a com communist organized economy, it was very much a centralized system. And so uh, institutions, centralized institutions were still the norm, very large um, mental institutions. And that is the broadest sense of the word. It included people with mental health conditions. It included people with intellectual disability. It included people who were pov in poverty. It just, there was a warehousing system. And, it, and what happened was everything got, um, as it broke down, the ability to support people was pretty limited. And so this began a process of trying to build community mental health systems. And, and my work had always been in community mental health. And so initially I went in when I was in Kosovo and did some trainings on um, the developmental use of activity. And in that, I, I was working with a number of NGOs, non-governmental organizations that were already in Kosovo. So I worked with War Child, which is a fascinating organization created by Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats um, to support children in refugee camps in Bosnia. And that went on to build you know, this presence. But what they were doing was they were bringing phys adaptive physical educators into classrooms to work with children. I also worked with Doctors of the World. I worked with Vietnam Veterans of America Foundation, who are a big supporter of anti-landmine campaigns and sports for life. And so I brought them all together and we did some trainings in the large mental institution. This really led to some connections through Serbia and then subsequently into Bosnia, the country of Bosnia and Herzegovina. In both cases, I was working in um, departments of psychiatry within their, within their medical schools um, with community mental health organizations. And um, in Serbia was really looking at the, the differences in, in the way people experienced mental health conditions in the United States. This was all very private and it was very, um, uh, you know, confidentiality was a big issue. Yet I was working in a smaller town in Serbia and and in one of the ways we were training people, we're doing a, a field-based survey and we were saying, you know, so if someone asks you, what are you doing? You don't have to say, well, I have a mental health condition and this is the study I'm taking. He said, why would I not tell people? Everyone knows that I have a mental illness. You know, this is this is not a problem. And so we started looking at differences between urbanization. There's this puzzling survey that came out called the International Study of Schizophrenia that people in industrial and developed countries actually fared worse over time than people in developing countries, which was completely the opposite of the expectation. And so people really tore this finding apart and nobody could really place why. And, and part of what we were looking at is perhaps it has to do with the ability of people to be integrated into small towns but isolated in, in these larger cities where they could become invisible. Um, that then led to some work that we did, I, I did in, in Bosnia with one of the first true um, users organizations. So the users organizations are people who are mental health consumers who have created their own self-help group. And this is um, the group Phoenix. And Phoenix was formed in 2020 um, with, a, with a psychiatrist who was a very forward-thinking psychiatrist who believed in, in what we call the dignity of risk here at the collaborative. And the dignity of risk is that um, we have to balance the dignity of care, the duty of care with the dignity of risk. And if we protect people from ever failing at anything, that's actually not like life for other people. That, that we all have the ability to try things and that we can fail at those things and we're not always protected from every possible failure. Um, and so this psychiatrist um, was working with a number of the, the main, the president is uh, an incredible man by the name of Vahid uh, Dulovic, 
Uh, he is a Bosnian War veteran, survived um, significant wounds, 26 surgeries in Germany, um, and you know was brave enough to come out as having a mental health condition. But he has been the president of Phoenix. Many of them had skills that could you know do things, and so the psychiatrist was willing to help them get woodshop tools. And so they started their own little social enterprise. And this, you know, became something that that built over time um, and continues to this day um, to, uh, unfortunately, I missed their 20th anniversary in 2020. I was going to be there for that, uh, but that got shut down. Uh, but they continue to support and advocate, and they're completely independent of the mental health system, unlike many other users associations that still are connected or sort of under the umbrella of the mental health system. And so sometimes controlled still by psychiatrists and mental health workers, whereas Phoenix is not controlled by them, but they work in partnership with the mental health services. So those are the kinds of things that we've been doing, you know, working in that area. It's it's fantastic work, Brian. And, and I have to say, um, I, I love this phrase, the, the dignity of risk, because uh, you know, as I mentioned before, I, I had the good fortune of being trained by uh, other psychologists with, you know, great expertise in anxiety disorders. And one of the things that they were big proponents of is, is what's known as exposure and response prevention, mm -hmm. which is when you are facing an anxiety provoking situation that as opposed to scurrying and running in the opposite direction, you should embrace the discomfort, figure out a way through that discomfort and anxiety and figure out a way to, you know, do what you want to do on the other side of it. And, um, you know, I think, you know, it's also a very innate human quality of yeah. that we, we should be able to find the ways to challenge ourselves appropriately, to embrace new experiences, mm -hmm. to, do new things and and yet you know oftentimes and it's never this simple but oftentimes you know we are sometimes the brakes on that car we're the ones who say uh, i don't know if i can go live in a foreign country for three months and try to help people i don't i don't know if i want to get on an airplane yeah. but the, i think the dignity of risk is such a, a beautiful phrase to think about those issues not only for people with serious mental illness but i think for all of us yeah i mean i think one of the biggest challenges and and something that I really think contributes to challenges with anxiety is the ability to fail. You know, that that people fail. You know, I I point out the number of grants that I didn't get, you know. Yeah. That's you you have to deal with that. You know, you know, failure is a part of, you know, nobody goes from success to success to success. Everyone experiences failure. And and if we take away that risk, that risk of failure, and that's what oftentimes is is this idea of the duty of care and protection. But if we take away the risk of ever failing, we really undermine people's abilities to be a part of society, right? I mean, that, and, and then we heighten, can, can really heighten anxiety about anything that becomes challenging because I don't know how to fail. I don't know how to deal with failure. Right. Yeah, they don't know how to recover from it. And, you know, you, you mentioned grants and you're absolutely right. You know, you and I are both baseball fans. We just as easily could say, you know, the best hitters in the game yep. fail 70% of the time. They yep. they don't put the ball in play. They don't end up on base. Um, and, you know, that that's a, can, on the one hand, those are the, the hitters that we applaud as being the best in the game. On the other hand, those are individuals who in theory are failing right. 60 to 70% of the time. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So uh, along with your colleague, Dr. Gretchen Sneven, and you mentioned Gretchen's name before, 
in the past year, you both have started talking to our college community, both our students, our staff, our faculty, about the importance of mattering. Mm -hmm. um, what exactly is mattering and why is it important? So mattering, um, at least in a psychological construct, really first appears as part of uh, Rosenberg's concept of self-esteem. And it's one of the elements of self-esteem is this, this feeling of mattering. Um, the the mattering construct really identifies, at least in the beginning, it begins, it, it identifies that people feel that they are at least recognized and noticed by other people and that other people consider them important. And, and the other element, it really is that people are relied upon. And, and that's actually one of the, the keys that we've focused on a lot is that reliance element. Um, but mattering is, is critically important in terms of um, personal development. I think one of the things that we find, um, and interestingly enough, um, many suicide prevention uh, campaigns really focus in on this concept of mattering because it's when people get to the point where they feel like they don't matter to anybody that they're at risk of, you know, taking that step to end their own life. Um, and so mattering is really also kind of important in the sense of that it can also lead to some very negative outcomes when people feel they don't matter. We might see things like mass killings or uh, things like that because people get to the point where they get very frustrated that they believe that they are invisible and, and nobody hears them and nobody listens to them and they want to do something to matter to other people. And sometimes that's horrendous to themselves. Sometimes that's horrendous to other people's. For most people, it's just seriously undermining and, and really um, sort of takes away their sense of identity and, and motivation to be anything. You know, I know I've mentioned to you, but a lot of this comes from the early work I did on social support and people with serious mental illness. And we would ask them questions about, you know, who can you turn to for a ride if you need one? Who could lend you money? You know, if you were really upset, who could you talk to to, you know, make you feel better? <clears throat> but we never asked the reverse question. We never said, who turns to you for a ride? Who turns to you for money? Who turns to you when they're upset? And by not asking that, we miss a vital part of, of mattering. That is the degree to which we're needed and relied upon. Um, we have a project right now called Need to be Needed, and that's really where the focus is. That while oftentimes people do feel like they might be, they might feel that they are in fact valued, if they're not needed by anyone for anything, it, it really then says something about their standing in their own social world and their own social network. And it can be very undermining for people's experience. I know you've heard my story from when I was in Bosnia and, and the challenge of, of being like an appendage to an environment that did not need me. It, it was functioning just fine without me. I was a Fulbright scholar. They weren't quite sure what to do with me. I had fortunately a lot of connections, you know, back in the US and, and was still able to, to, to manage. But in that environment, it, really it would have taken days if I just didn't show up for anybody to notice. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't that they didn't care about me. They very much did. I mean, they, they definitely valued me. They always liked to see me, but it, I didn't, I wasn't needed there. So, you know, I can't, I, as you're, as you're giving that anecdote, I can't help but think a little bit about, you know, when we read that a, you know, world famous musician or actor or actress takes their own life. Yeah. And, and we all kind of say, but you know, they were universally loved. They, had, you know, they had tens of thousands of fans. How would that, you know, if not hundreds of thousands of fans, how would that not be enough? But 
you know, when, when you hear stories about musicians and the challenges of being on the road, you, you can, as you explained it, it, it was easy for me to appreciate that, boy, you know, it's one thing to play in front of 20,000 screaming fans, but if you feel like, do I, you know, do, do, what do, what else do, do I bring to these relationships? You know, where else is, you know, where, where, how do I matter beyond that? And, and I think a, a little bit more sense. And I think a lot of times too, that, that sense of mattering can be as simple as one relationship, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's part of the thing here is that, you know, somebody who might have thousands and thousands of fans may not have a close confidant to whom they matter. Yeah. And so that really can be something that's really quite undermining. Yeah. You know, or, their, I, or their close confidant is half a world away and they're not going to see them for three more months because yeah. they're, you know, yeah. filming a movie, they're on tour. Wherever. Yeah. You so, know, it's interesting. Some of the early work on mattering also came out on adolescence and looking at mattering to their families and, you know, what would be called antisocial types of behaviors, engagement and smoking and alcohol consumption and those sorts of things. And, and when you think about adolescence, it is a difficult time in which, you know, it, it's a movement from childhood in which sort of the relationship between parent and child is always is very strongly one sided, you know. But as, as adolescents become adolescents, the question is, where can they add value in a way that makes sense? Proletensky talks about mattering as these two components, being valued and then adding value. And while they may be valued by their family and their parents, and some aren't, um, they may have almost no opportunities to add value, to make a difference, to be somebody that's relied upon. And, and again, we see this in late life too. And this is another one of those challenges when many of those roles that we um, adults typically have had, whether it's being a parent, you know, you may still be a parent, but your children now have, may have their own children. And so your, you know, your role is very different. Um, you may retire or leave whatever it is your, you know, career, your vocation is. And so you may lose a number of these things where you have these opportunities to add value, mm-hmm. you know, and that oftentimes can be this undermining process that people, you know, have a very hard time continuing to see that they matter uh, in the world around them when many of the things they used to do that really, really mattered are gone. Um, you know, I think also, and I've talked with, I've, I've talked with Gretchen about this too. You know, I think this also is something that can be understood in the sense of uh, combat veterans who leave the service doing something incredibly meaningful, you know, and now in civilian life, everything pales. Yeah. So I, I, in one of the studies that I'm doing with some combat veterans, that's something that we hear a lot. Mm -hmm. It's not universal. Um, And it actually does seem like those who have found something that brings, whether it's, it's family, whether it's, it's raising children, whether it's doing some form of volunteer work or, you know, paying it, paying it forward in the proverbial way, seem to be the ones who are adjusting to home life uh, a little more uh, readily. Yeah. So, so my last question to you, Brian, where, where would you like, you know, let's fast forward three years, maybe five. Um, where would you like to see this work be both in terms of your research, but also maybe in terms of the culture of our college? Well, you know, I think, I, I think the concept of mattering is one that when you talk to people about it, it, it seems intuitive. Most, it, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a complex psychological construct. You know, it's a relatively simple one. And, and I do think people understand it. One of the things I think that's the most important about it is that it's very much a modifiable factor. 
right? We we can do things to help people feel like they matter. Um, and and to convey that they matter in ways that are meaningful, right? It's not, it's not um, just to make people feel better. It actually is, you know, we can rely on people and help them to understand that they in fact matter. I, I, I have, you know, significant concern that particularly our undergraduates oftentimes feel that they don't matter um, to our, whether it's our us as instructors, whether it's our departments, whether it's our colleges or our university, they feel like they don't matter. And, and I think that really has an impact on the way they engage with their own education, right? It's not, they just don't see the connection. And, and I do think that that's one of the places that we can start to make a difference is, is to, to, to make sure that we as faculty and as administrators understand what we need to do to help to, to make sure that our students understand that they do matter to us um, and, and develop ways that allow them to, to feel that way, to, to really you know, do things that are valuable, meaningful, that, that really connect them with their peers, with their instructors, with their institution. Um, I think the same is true of many of the people that, that work with our, you know, within our college. Um, some fascinating, one of the most interesting studies that I saw in reading some of the stuff about mattering had to do with um, looking at the culture of mattering within a hospital and some of the custodial staff's feelings about being invisible. That, you know, they felt that the, you know, residents and physicians and even some of the nurses didn't didn't even appreciate what they did. You know, so I think that's one part of the other process too, is to ensure that it isn't just the students that we have to look at. There are a lot of people within our institutions who don't get the attention that people like me get, yeah. right? I mean, I get attention for getting research grants, but there are a lot of other people who that's not their job and they don't get attention for doing their job. Right. And, and I think it is such an important strategy and thing for all of us to keep in mind because that's what strengthens our communities mm -hmm. on so many different levels. It's that that personal touch. It's that eye contact. That, that's hello. How are you? Um, that, you know, not only makes that person feel like they matter, but as you were saying before, the importance of sharing that and, and you know, sharing that goodwill with others right. to, to really kind of make our community is better and stronger. So, right. so Brian, I want to thank you for uh, really just a, an incredibly engaging conversation. Um, you know, we covered an awful lot of ground, didn't probably talk as much baseball as I would have yeah. thought we might have, but maybe our listeners will thank us for that. But again, I want to thank you for spending some time with us in our community. Uh, everyone, this has been our most uh, recent episode of Common Voice. Been thrilled to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Brian McCormick, and we'll see you with our next episode. have been listening to Common Voice, a podcast of the College of Public Health of Temple University. If you are interested in learning more about our academic programs and scholarship, or providing financial support to Common Voice, our programs, or students, please visit us at www.cph.temple.edu.